Hey, and welcome to the 12 Stone Church Podcast. Thank you so much for taking time to be a part of today's message. We hope it inspires you, encourages you, and deepens your faith in Jesus. Enjoy the message. Well, I am fired up. I can't help myself. I am fired up for today. Sorry, this is what you're going to get. I am like the Coke bottle that's been shaking all week, and I finally get to turn the top, and you know what it does. So anybody else fired up if God has something for you today? I hope you are, because it's coming. It's coming. Listen, you're going to, yeah, that's right, bring it. Listen, God is going to break through in relationships for you, whether you're single or married, however you grew up in your family of origin, it's going to impact family and friendships and work and, and associations and church. It's just, it, it will awaken things in you. We left off last week, Pastor Steve taught from the question, how do I break the cycle of dysfunction from the Old Testament story of Joseph? And then the team of mostly 30-somethings asked me to teach part two. So welcome to part two of the very same question. And the essence of what they asked me was this. Listen, you grew up a mess. You sort of are a mess, but your family isn't a mess. So how on earth did it go from the mess you grew up in to the mess your family's not in? How, how, did, how did God break that cycle? Now we know it's, I get it. It's Marsha. I get, I get it. So it's Marsha. And it's God. I get that. But, but specifically, they asked, is there something that God did? What was the breakthrough? And I, man, I, it, I've, I've never been able to sit in this at the level I get to today. So this kind of a, a, some old thoughts and new teaching all inside what God's been doing. But let's confess, we all come from different backgrounds, different family of origins, and nobody uh, has a way of capturing the uniqueness of, of upbringings like the comedian Sebastian Maniscalco, oh my gracious, when he talks about his wife's Southern California bringing, blending with his immigrant Italian-American parents, and then he mimics his father, it's hilarious, and since I'm in charge, we get to watch 50 seconds of it. Check it out. My wife's side's like really happy, and they encourage things. Right? <laughs> they like do retreats as a family. They, they work on their inner self. We work on our inner self. <laughs> they do therapy. My, my family don't do any of this. No therapy, no bettering. It's like, this is it. What are you going to do? Change? This is you. No one's popping pills on my side. Nobody's on antidepressants. My father's like, I've been depressed for 30 years. <laughs> I love that guy. Maybe, maybe we could just listen to him for an hour, but we got stuff to say. You come from your own particular family of origin, and it, it gets in you, and it helps define you, and then you carry it with you in all of your relationships. So how do you break the cycle of dysfunction. And 
the Holy Spirit uh, very kindly, by the way, the Holy Spirit is called your counselor. You're what, everybody? Counselor. So when you come to God through Jesus and you're restored to him, the Holy Spirit indwells you. And one of his definitions of himself is I'm your counselor. He's your primary counselor. And he counseled me as my primary counselor. You, using God's word, the Bible. A particular event, an experience at age 11. And then a book, a distinct book, when I was 30. So when I was 11, uh, I got I got a I got a splinter when I was 11 years old, and uh, I, I found out from from uh, Trey Hildebrandt over at Snellville, our campus, that that in the South the T is silent, so it's splinter. So so it's not splinter, it's splinter. Okay, got it. So it kind of like you know, I guess that that's redneck, man. Boy, let me get that splinter out of your face. Okay, anyhow, so I, you got the splinter, and 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 I didn't. I, I've been through it before. How many of you ever had a splinter? Had your your parents pull dig that thing? I, I knew that if I let Dad do that again, he thinks he's a surgeon. He has no training, so he's going to get that needle and maybe a knife when needed and just dig that baby out. I'm like, I don't. So in order to avoid pain, in order to what? Avoid pain. I decided to neglect it. And you know what happened. About two to three to four days later, what was neglected got infected, and, and it got nasty. Now, I, I don't have the picture of it, but I can show you sort of what it looked like. So I'm going to flash a picture on the screen. If you, if, you're just, if you don't like these pictures, then look away for just a second, but this is, this is what it did. So, so it, it did that like, it got infected like that. Okay, take it off so that the people who are like, it's not that bad, but, but it, oh, did that hurt? And, and you know what? Listen, listen, I didn't avoid pain. I increased it. Relationships put emotional splinters in you. Relationship and family dysfunction puts splinters in your heart, in your soul, in your spirit, in your emotions, in your psyche. And they get in there and we decide, you know what? That's too painful to deal with, so I'll just neglect it. And listen, what gets neglected gets infected. And, and you don't really escape the pain. You increase it. There's all sorts of well, me by splinters in family dysfunction. It, it, it can be insecurities, addictions, forms of abuse. It can be emotional neglect. It can be anger and rage, conflict avoidance, divorce, abandonment. Some of the things I was familiar with or poverty or loss or trauma. It can just be driven at all costs to win. We'll abandon anything to win. The list is long, but what it does is it gets under your skin. Nobody escapes it. And that brings us to today's story. 
the story of Absalom. Now, I just want you to know that on the other side of this Old Testament story of Absalom, on the other side of today's conversation, God offers freedom. He offers what? Freedom. He'll set you free. This is, this is not a great story. I'm not, oh, this is a fun story, and look how it turned. This, this one didn't turn out so good. But if you listen, on the other side of this, there's freedom, because Absalom got a wound. Got a splinter in his family of origin, and he neglected. Who's Absalom? Let's talk a little bit. Let's just walk through. He was a prince, the fourth son of King David. As in David of David and Goliath fame, David, author of the Psalms, king of Israel. His mom was the fourth of eight wives for King David. He had a sister named Tamar, who was very beautiful, and he was handsome. And the reason I know that is because Scripture in 2 Samuel bothers to tell us. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him. He would weigh it, and its weight was five pounds. I don't know what that means, but it's interesting. He had a great future. Well, of course he did. He is David's son. He's a prince. He's got wealth and influence, and he's got looks. Are you kidding me? That's so unfair. Anyhow, he got a family wound, a splinter, or splinter, that became infected and toxic. And what? Toxic. And this whole thing goes downhill, and he had a great fall, and... And he lost it all. And I just, you need to know he didn't have to lose large. And neither do you. Yeah, we've, you've either got major or minor dysfunction. You carry it with you into relationships. You carry it into your adult world. <laughs> but there is freedom on the other side. And if Absalom could show up today, I think I know some of the things he would tell us. Here's one of them. I think Absalom would tell us, healthy people, families, and relationships remove splinters without delay. Write it down, take a picture, get it in your head, get it in your heart. You say, well, what do healthy people do? You know, the healthy thing would have been for me to just say, Dad, Mom, I got a splinter. Uh, I know this is going to hurt, but just get it out now. Get it out now so that we can get past it. I'll take the pain immediately so that long term I don't carry it with me. And it doesn't get infected. And then it doesn't undo the rest. Like, it shuts you down. Just healthy families, remove it and get it done now. Don't delay. That's it. We could be all done with the teaching, but this isn't what we do. And that isn't what Absalom did. By the way, taking out splinters is not only true physically. It's, it's, it's true in families and spiritually. And you can tell we're going to have a pretty serious conversation about splinters. Now, how did Solomon or Absalom rather get a splinter? Like, what, what, what was it? Ah, here's the story. It's, it's a rough one. But I, Scripture bothers to tell the story. Absalom's older brother, Amnon, firstborn of David. He creates a ruse where he deceives David to give him the opportunity to be alone with 
his half-sister Tamar in order to take advantage of her and rape her. Okay, that's horrific. Talk about family dysfunction. It wounded not only Tamar, but it, it wounded her older brother, Absalom. Here's the scripture. Her brother Absalom said to her, Tamar, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Absalom is understandably wounded. His sister's wounded, but we'll sit in Absalom's side of the story. It's a real splinter. And this is painful. This doesn't sit well. He, listen, he's, he's not only wounded by what Amnon had done. He's wounded by what his father did not do. David was furious, but he did nothing. And that wounded Absalom. It's almost like in the dysfunction, Absalom had to step up and become the dad and the protector of Tamar. I don't know how you'll tell your family story. I don't know what's in your roots. But did this just go away? No. You know what we say in dysfunctional families? Just be quiet, and then we don't say anything. Did you see that in the scripture? Be quiet. Don't say anything. Why? Because then it goes away. It doesn't go away. Emotional splinters hang with you. They travel with you. You, you, you know what the next scripture says? <laughs> Two years later. I mean, that wasn't just SpongeBob. That stuff, that's, that's, that, that's, that moves the story on and says, hey, guess what? This stuff didn't just sit there. Two years later, all along, what got neglected got infected. And it makes you toxic. I want to show you three things that we're going to chat about today where you get toxic from family wounds and splinters that do not get removed. Victimhood, ambition, and envy. Listen, take a picture, write it down. We'll walk through them. Get this in your head and your heart. Understand that when a splinter, a wound to your emotions, your psyche, your heart, your soul, relationally, etc., occurs at whatever level or trauma, what it tends to do is to move you from victim to victimhood and it becomes toxic. And that tends to drag you into toxic ambition. And that tends to drag you into toxic envy. Let's talk about victimhood. I want to stay, I want to stay close to my notes. I want to stay in this. I think this is a really complicated but important conversation. See, Absalom, the next thing he did two years later was create a ruse. Listen, he created a ruse. Deceived his father, David, to create an opportunity in order to destroy Amnon. Does that sound familiar? 
That is the same tactic that Amnon used. Create a ruse, deceive his father in order to destroy someone. Watch this. Amnon is becoming like the people he once condemned. He is doing the same thing to others that they did to him. And the thing he would have condemned in Amnon, how dare, how dare you set up a ruse and, and, and how, how dare you deceive dad and, and how dare you take opportunity to destroy my sister and then I'll do the same thing. Oftentimes the stuff we condemn in other people, we become because that dysfunction that got neglected gets infected in us and we're like, now I'm justified. Listen, when you're a victim, a legit victim, when someone hurts you, then you feel justified to hurt others. And that sits inside you. And this is way before Jerry Springer. Absalom is justified because he's been hurt. He's been what? Yeah, he's been hurt. And because it's painful for him and painful for Tamar, being hurt justifies moving from victim to victimhood. Stay with me. From victim to victimhood. See, instead of the surgery to remove the splinter, Well, you know what? I've been hurt. I'm justified. See, we think we live in a horrible culture of I'm easily offended. We think like, oh my goodness, we live in the most I'm offended culture in the history of humanity. No, this, this was happening back here 3,000 years ago. He's offended. This is a biblical conversation as old as sin. Because a whole lot of I'm offended is because I'm hurt. And I feel permission and justified to move from victim to victimhood. What do I mean by that? Let me, let me just give you a way to think about it. Victim is a real life experience of being hurt. Victimhood is a lifestyle of being offended. Hang on. See, being a victim is something somebody else chooses for you. Victimhood is something you choose for yourself. There's a huge difference. And Absalom went from being a real victim to victimhood. Now, since I was asked to be pretty honest about my own story and my own experience, I was hurt growing up. Our family dysfunction was not good. I had my emotional splinters from immature parents and dysfunctional family and Abandonment and poverty and divorce and losing my chance to be a teenager at the age of 12, taking on responsibilities that should have been my dad's. It messes with you. It gets in you. It creates dark black holes in your soul that you don't even understand. And you carry that in all your relationships. And I discovered that I was, by the time I got in my 20s, I, let me say it this way, that a lot of people hurt me. Here's what I mean. I, I go to college, I'm in Bible college, and I'm like, you know what? The people here hurt me. Well, I'm so offended by them, by professors and leaders, even the president of, our, of, of the college. And I'm, of course, it, it doesn't matter that I'm rebellious and violating all the values of the, of the Bible college. That's irrelevant. It's that they're disappointing. The president of the university literally sat at the Bible college, sat down with me in my first year to be a pastor, which is awesome. Um, 
He says, we're very disappointed in you. I'm sitting in the president's office. He said, we're very disappointed in you. I said, well, that makes us even. I'm very disappointed in you. <laughs> I know, forgive me. I'm so embarrassed. It's just, I'm so screwed up. I don't know how screwed up I am because I have victimhood. And then I'm hurt by people when I get in my first job and I'm hurt by the first senior pastor that, that I, I serve under. He hurts me. And then I plant this church and you all are hurting me. I mean, you know what? I'm just, is anybody a Christian anymore? I'm, I'm, I'm offended by people. I'm cynical and I have a right to be because people are hurting me. What is wrong with this world? I don't know. I'm, I, the decade of my 20s wasn't a great season. Age 30. I came across a book called We Are Driven. And the Holy Spirit, who is my counselor, used this book alongside the Bible, alongside prayer, alongside the experience of an 11-year-old. Let me just read a, a couple things from the book. We are driven. The compulsive behaviors America applauds. And it's talking about the dysfunction and how it moves you from not just being, not having strong drive, but being driven. Meaning out of the whole of your life, you're driven. Dysfunction, drivenness, compulsivity, applauded addictions. I know you don't need me to read you, but I'm going to bother for just a bit. And I know this is an old book. Just stay in it. These are interchangeable terms to describe the performance and perfection pressures that characterize the emotional health epidemic of the 1990s. And most of us are unaware of 80% of our faults. Compulsivity is an addiction to achievement and accomplishment. At its roots, compulsivity reflects my inability to appropriately love and value myself apart from external achievement. This inability to accept myself comes from a state of spiritual alienation and from my inability to accept God's unconditional love for me. One of the distinctions between normal and not so normal kind of drivenness is the difference between being and doing. In other words, people who have a, a hole from the slivers that have been neglected and infected have this emptiness out of which they're going to prove themselves because validation hasn't been given and stuff has been lost and they don't even understand what's broken and going on and the mess inside. And so they're, they're a drivenness, not just healthy driven. And so it's more for doing than being and they don't get the being right. So he describes one of the distinctions between the normal and the not-so-normal kind of drivenness is the difference between being and doing. Think of it this way. Humans who are being, who get that right, are persons who have a healthy feeling of self-worth. Humans doing, however, are convinced they have to prove their worth every day. Then it goes into this test, which I wanted to ace. Um, do you have a driven personality? I don't know, but I'm going to win. So it describes dysfunction and, 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 and workaholism and, and drivenness. And I think, let's see who I am. So there's 20 questions. I got eight and a half right out of the 20. And then I read further and it says, if, you got, if you're 10 of these or more, you're in trouble. If you're 15 or more, you're in serious trouble. I'm 18.5. I read it wrong. I thought this was bowling. It was golf. You were trying to get a low score to win. 
And I get done with this and I realize, you know what? I'm a mess. And the Holy Spirit used that to speak something into my spirit and took me all the way back to an 11 year old. He said, do you remember when you had uh, that sliver in your finger, you neglected it and it got infected? Yeah. And do you remember when you bumped into your brother and you said to your brother, you felt so much pain. It hurt so bad. That finger was so infected and so sensitive. When you bumped into your brother, you said, you hurt me. Remember that? Yeah. That's what's wrong with you. See, what happened to you physically is what's happened to you emotionally and relationally and spiritually. You are an unhealed, splinter-filled, infected soul who is so sensitive that when people bump into you, even though they did not hurt you, you feel hurt. You see the whole world as someone to blame. And you can't see. They are not the source. You are. More like this. Hurt people are easily hurt. They're easily offended. Hurting people tend to hurt others. Lash out or destroy. This was such a kind and difficult thing to hear. I was living toxic victimhood. I was blaming people for my pain. And it's just mine. They were not the source of my pain. What was unhealthy and infected in me was the reason I was so sensitive so that if you even bumped into me, I felt like you were challenging me, questioning me, putting me on the defense. You know, sometimes I just wonder, what if 51% of all the times in our world people say, I'm offended? What if what it really means is, I'm so unhealthy, I'm so hurting, that for you to even bump into me makes me feel hurt? What if we're really not that offended? What if we're all just playing victims with victimhood? And the reason it's unfixable is because we think the problem is around us when it's within us. It was no small thing for God to arrest and grant a breakthrough. I had to stop saying, I wrote this down so you can hear it. I had to stop saying you hurt me and start saying, I feel hurt, but it's mostly me because I'm easily hurt. No wonder nobody's having this conversation. Oh, the church hurt me. Really? I thought you were the church. Church is just people. I mean, the church was hurting me. My wife was hurting me. Everybody was hurting me. Really? I'm not saying there isn't real hurt. I'm not saying all the time. But what if too often... It's just because there's a compulsive, dysfunctional drivenness, which is the path I was on that tends to destroy the best things in life. And God in his grace was awakening that. What do you do? Here's some thoughts. At least this is the process I walked through. I'm not going to spend long on it. You can snap a picture of it. Obvious. It's fairly obvious. You're not going to be like, oh, I never thought of that. Quit denying. God, help me see my splinters. 
I, you know what? I couldn't see them. So I'm like, okay, God, I can't see them. Would you help me see them? By the way, be very careful of that prayer. The Holy Spirit's going to be like, finally, let me show you. That's fun. It, it means Marsha was right, but I don't want to talk about it. So number two, remove the old splinter. God, uh, help me surrender. God, I, you got to do a work in me that I cannot do. So I'm going to surrender that to you, and you help remove it, and then give it time to heal. God, I need you to help me heal because I can't pull that off on my own. And by the way, when I say when I say this, remove the old splinter, I'll come back if we have time. I doubt we will, but uh, if we have time, and I'll hit validation. Because you say, well, how does he remove the splinter? I'm just going to tell you. He has to shift where you find your validation. But, but, but I'll move on. Then give it time to heal. God, please help me heal, which means you got to clean it and then keep it clean. Can't let it get reinfected. And then use suffering to benefit others. Here's why. Because, listen, the place where God heals you is the place you have the greatest voice to help others. So don't think that where you're most broken is where you can least be used. Usually where you're most broken is the best place God can use you. So God walks me through this journey, but Absalom wouldn't walk it. He wouldn't do it. Absalom said, I'm not going to do that. And if you will not do it, then it drags you into the next. So let's just go to the next dysfunction. You go from toxic victimhood to toxic ambition. And, and toxic ambition kind of says this. Since I get to blame everybody else for what's going wrong in my life and everybody hurts me, then nobody's in my corner. So it's me in my own corner. And when you get to this, it's me in my own corner. And I got to take care of me. And I got to stand for me. And I got to be about me. It infects your ambition. And it takes it from good godly ambition to use your gifts, talents, and abilities to build stuff with God and give glory to God and, and add value to others. Instead of that, in your soul, whether anybody else knows it or not, it gets corrupted. And what happens in your soul is it becomes about you and you, you give yourself permission to do what Absalom did. Look at the scripture. Look at what Absalom did for himself. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the King's Valley as a monument to himself. Are you kidding me? Hey, nobody else was going to build it. He's on his own. Nobody's in his corner. He'll do it. A monument to himself, for he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. And listen, if you won't clean up toxic victimhood, you'll be dragged into toxic ambition, and it'll drag you in to toxic envy. I don't know how to unpack this fast, but I think it deserves a conversation. Let's talk about toxic envy. Being compulsively driven is insatiable. It's unrelenting. It's never satisfied. I call myself a recovering workaholic. <laughs> so whatever you have, see, if you're driven, and I don't mean healthy drive. I mean the unhealthy out of dysfunction. You'd have to read the whole book. We are driven. See, whatever you have then is not enough. Because you got a hole in the bucket. And whatever goes in there leaks out anyway. So you'll trade all the best things in life. To get more because it's not enough. I mean more in influence, more power, more performance, more possessions. But hang on. 
which means that if someone else has more than you, you have envy in the undercurrent of your soul because you want what they have. David was king and Absalom wanted to be king. wasn't enough for Absalom to be prince. So instead of gratitude, he chose envy because this thing was toxic. So he took the kingship, kingship temporarily. He came after his dad, his ugly, and then started a war. So now David has been unseated by his own son in a violent takeover. And then Absalom starts a war with David. He's riding his donkey in the midst of the war through the trees and gets his hair caught in the trees. And the donkey keeps walking and he's just swinging and dangling in the trees. And the other warriors come and kill him. And that's it. Story over. It came to, he came to nothing. He never imagined that's what his life would come to. And we think petty envy is present day. People online going after other people for what they have and what they've accomplished and not liking somebody else's influence or performance or achievement. It's funny. We, 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 like, we listen to people who attack other people, people who have done little, who attack people who have done much. And instead of going after the petty envy that's behind the writing, we all got a little petty envy in us. And some of us have toxic envy. And I, unknown to myself, had toxic envy. I wanted things in my 20s without paying the price, without appreciating the price that would have to be paid, and without respecting those who paid the price to get what they had. It was just infected. I didn't understand it. And God gave me a breakthrough. The only way I know how to describe the breakthrough is with marshmallows. So just hang with me. Believe it or not, this could be helpful. There's a bag there if you want some after. If you're just like, ooh, I could use one. Ow. There was a test done in 1972 by Stanford University that put in front of kids uh, one marshmallow and then said to them, if you wait, you'll get a second one. You don't have to. You could just eat the first one. But if you want two instead of one, you have to wait. Here's a remake from just one little moment with a couple of adorable kids, and then we'll talk. Check it out. Okay, so I have one marshmallow for each of you. Okay. One. Don't eat it. And here's the deal. You can either eat it now, or you can wait till I get back, and you can have two. Okay? Okay. So eat it now or wait till I get back and you can have two. And I'll be Okay. 
How, ador how adorable is that little girl? I mean, I don't know who the parents are, but thank you very much for the moment. And it's just to say this. Here is the breakthrough for me. I come from a one marshmallow family who was always envious of people who had to. Our family always ate the marshmallow. Instant gratification. Consume whatever comes in. Little discipline at all. Play and then pay. And I realized I grew up in a one marshmallow family who was always envious of two marshmallow families. And we made little of what it cost families to get two marshmallows. It was fascinating. See, the price is waiting. The price is delayed gratification. The price is discipline. The price is hard work. The price, the price between those. And you know what? My family was like the, the little girl. We, we ate the one, and then we said, I'm waiting. Right? I mean, because that's what pretense, that's what pretense dysfunction. It says, I'm waiting. And then when they come in the room, you're like, where's my second marshmallow? Well, you ate it, and that's fine. No, no, where's my, like, this world isn't fair. I should get God's like, son, first get healthy in your soul and then learn how to do pay, then play. Don't be envious, be disciplined, and then learn how to be content with whatever I give you. Get settled in your soul so you get your validation right. So, I know that princes always want kingly things without paying the price. And God had to grow something different in me. It doesn't solve all the conversations. But it does help me understand that Absalom lived in toxic dysfunction. And he would not change. And he lost. And you don't have to lose, and neither do I. So God graciously put something in front of me that was authored in this book. A kind of mild twist to how it works in my world. If this is worth a picture or taking down his notes, and this will be our final kind of send you off. You have to figure out how validation works in you. I'll just call it a validation train. Number one, God's validation, and that's kind of the engine of the train. Then self-validation, which means you accept what God says is true about you, and that's really the validation of the living God and creating you, designing you. Validation from others is number three. Validation from performance and success is four. Validation of material possessions and stuff is number five. So that's kind of the caboose. And here's the point. The order matters. So if you get fulfillment from God and with yourself, you and God, you get this right in you, then everything else is added bonus. Validation from others is a bonus. You don't need it, but it's a nice ad. Validation for performance success, it's a bonus. You don't need it, but it's a nice ad. Validation of material possessions and stuff, you don't need it, but it's a nice ad. If you get the order right, but this world confuses it, flips it, and says your validation is material possessions and performance. And when you do that, God's validation means little, and you become driven in this black hole of your soul that makes you go after performance and after possessions and after the stuff of the world, and you trade relationships, and you end up loving things and using people and forfeiting the best things in life.
and reproducing the same dysfunction that was in you. And God in his grace said, I can do better if you'll just surrender. See, it's usually in the stuff where you're a mess that God remakes you. Yes, it was my first 20 years, a mess. Next 10 years of my 20s, easily hurt. From my 30s on, he began to form this new thing. How to get rid of the splinter, how to keep it clean, how to let him heal, and how to reconstruct validation. And in that, a fresh prayer. We hear it as a promise, but look at Romans chapter 8. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's a promise from God. You have to love him and walk according to his purpose. I get that. But what if more than just a promise, what if that becomes your prayer? And you say, God, would you take whatever minor or major dysfunction I brought into my life from my experience, and would you turn that away from toxic victimhood, away from this toxic ambition, away from toxic envy, and would you take all that was a mess and remake it for good? You know, it's interesting, the whole journey of my 30s was discovering how to take God's word and we are driven and let the spirit of God do something fresh. And out of that came Home Run. Home Run is the book that was the rewriting and the healing process. And if you're familiar with that book, you can see how it got written. So bow your heads with me. What if God would rewrite your story? 12 Stone Home, online community, at the campuses. Just bow your heads before the Lord, would you? I want to take a moment with you. I want to offer a prayer over you. The kinds of prayers that I ask God to do in me and he has graciously done. And I'm not, I'm not perfect. I haven't got this all together. Heavenly Father, you know I don't. You know none of us do. We are desperate for you. But right now, some of us have got to be honest enough to say, I probably got some stuff that's been neglected and infected, and, and I got to have an honest dialogue with you, God, and I got to get freed up. And, and, and God, my prayer is going to be this. Would you, would you take what is a mess, what's infected, and would you walk me through a healing process and turn it for good so that in the very places I was once broken, you give me breakthrough and I can be a blessing to others. So I want to pray that over you while your heads are bowed wherever you are. And if you say, Lord, I'm in, I'll take that prayer. Just lift your hand. Just, you're just saying between you and God, I'll take that prayer. I don't know how major or minor it is for you. Go ahead. Just don't worry about anybody else. Get the hands up, cross the campuses, even, even 12 Stone Home, even online. So Heavenly Father, everyone who's saying, would you do this in me? May today be the beginning of the breakthrough. God, I pray for a powerful outpouring of your Holy Spirit. And though you did it in moments for me, it was a long process. However long, God, would you remove the splinters? Would you clean the wound? Would you keep it clean? Help us find our validation in you. And would you remake us and make us a blessing to others? In Christ's name, and everyone agreed saying, amen. 
thank you again for spending time with us today. A special thanks to those of you who generously give through 12 Stone. It is because of you that this ministry is possible. And if you want to learn more about 12 Stone, make sure you follow us on social at 12 Stone Church and check out a location or a watch party near you. And if you enjoyed the podcast, you could subscribe, share it with your friends, hit the share button, or even take a screenshot and throw it in your social stories. And make sure to tag 12 Stone Church. Let it be a blessing to somebody else. Thank you again, and we'll catch you on the next one.